He's got one foot in the frying pan and one in the pressure cooker. Believe me, as a bowler, I know that right about now, your bladder feels like an overstuffed vacuum cleaner bag, and your butt is kind of like an about-to-explode bratwurst. Hey, do you mind? I wasn't talking when you were bowling. Was I talking out loud? Welcome to Munson's at the Movies. My name is Kyle. I will once again be your host. Joined by the rest of the Munson's. Want to give them a wide berth. It's what is called a born loser. A real Munson. <laughs> and talk a little bit about what's going on in their worlds. Rigby, we'll start with you this time. Happy to be here. This is a uh, an episode that I've been looking forward to for a long time. And when, when Kyle names the guests that we're covering, you'll find out why. James. I actually wanted to give a shout out to Aubrey. I, he was supposed to join us. We'll talk about it a little bit more. Uh, he's one of our most enjoyable guests, and I know he's a huge fan of the show. We wish we could have him, but he's taking care of his family, and hope everything's working out for him. Making the smart move. Yep. Yep. We wish you well, buddy. We're sad he's not here, but it's... On the back end of a couple of weeks of straight Leonardo DiCaprio movies and research, and, and excited for this episode... And by the end of this episode, I'd love to hear everybody's favorite movie and favorite role of DiCaprio. Everybody I ask, it's different. And I'll give, you, I'll give away mine right now and see if y'all can change my mind. My favorite DiCaprio movie is Inception. And then I think clearly my favorite DiCaprio role is Man in the Iron Man. No, I'm kidding. Oh, boy. <laughs> I go back and forth between The Departed and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But if I had to make a stance right now, I'd say The Departed. You had me in the first half, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> yeah, the, the Iron Mask movie really threw me <laughs> off there. I want to give a quick shout out to uh, former Munson, Chloe Grace Moretz. She has been tearing up the Twitter this week because it turns out she's a huge gamer. She's been playing Call of Duty, she's playing Destiny. She's asking for recommendations, and so we're big fans of that. So I wish I could retroactively give her a couple points for being just fucking cool. She's just fucking cool. Because Aubrey can't be here, we're rolling just the four of us, and we're going to get into this. It's going to be great. All right, birthdays. Rigby, October 6th. What do we got? First up, we got Elizabeth Shue. Hollow Man. Cocktail. Back to the Future Part 2 and Part 3. Plays Marty's uh, girlfriend in that movie. And also the latest edition of Death Wish with Bruce Willis. Peace. Almost. I am to Elizabeth Shue as James is to Katie Holmes. Katie Holmes. Katie Holmes, yes. I think I had a massive crush on Elizabeth Shue and I disliked anybody that she acted with. <laughs> I'm gonna give her fifty. That feels right. I was I was thinking around fifty. Yeah. She's turning fifty nine. Good for her. I guess I did once a time like older women, speaking of Leo DiCaprio. <laughs> Elizabeth, tell your people to listen to this because we are so complimentary. <laughs> I think James took that one, is that right? Next up we have Olivia Thirlby. She stars in two of the Munson favorite movies on this podcast. Uh one being Juno and the other being Dread, Both which I really enjoyed. I reviewed that one for the Lena Headey episode. Mm-hmm. Excellent flick. Both of them. Oh, she's young. Cooler and Juno, and Juno came out in 2007, so that'll put you in the ballpark. She's 34, because that's my age, and I was almost in high school in 2007. <laughs> I'm going to go a little bit younger. I'm on, I'm on theme today. 29. 38. She is turning 36. James again. Fuck this guy. James wins again. He gave us the answer, man. <laughs> I didn't sign up to do math. <laughs> it could have been a mislead. People like, you know, that are like 26 play high schoolers, so I tried to... That's true. Like Vanderbeek. When he was dating Katie Holmes in Dawson's Creek. Yeah. Not, not to bring it back. I'm not jealous or anything. Vanderbeek in Varsity Blues is like 
pretty sure that guy's like 30 years old. I don't want your life. <laughs> Last but not least, Miss Addison Ray. I have no idea who she is other than a social media influencer, but apparently she made an appearance in a Netflix movie that was terrible, according to Carol. Yes. It was the worst movie I saw last year. Oh, social media. I, I don't have TikTok, so I don't really know yeah. who she is. I just know she's good looking and, and attractive and has a bunch of followers. But Everything I've learned about this woman has been without my consent. <laughs> <laughs> just popping up no matter where you go, right? Yeah, just nonstop like, oh, look at Addison Ray's date. I'm like, I don't know who this girl is and I don't care. It's like, oh, her mom, look what she said. I was like, why is this still happening? Who is this person? <laughs> I'm just going to throw a number out, 25. I don't know. She's nowhere near that. She's young, maybe 20. I'll say 20, uh, but probably 19. Damn. She's young. I couldn't tell you what she looks like. What I do know is that Young Gravy dated her mom. I don't That's know it. who Young Gravy is. Nope. I, <laughs> I don't know. Who the hell? He's a rapper. But it's a thing. What would you say? 25 and 20? I'll go 26 because I think she's younger than that, but I don't want to get all three in a row. <laughs> He's cucking Craig. No, down. no, no. She's definitely younger. She's definitely younger. <laughs> so she's turning 22. I learned. Yeah, there you go. I, I felt bad shooting the gap there because I knew it was somewhere in the middle. <laughs> say that's one of the younger uh, birthdays that we've had on the show, too. Yeah, and probably one of the least accomplished people we've yeah. discussed. Yeah. <laughs> least deserving of their fame. <laughs> she just does a bunch of dances in front of a TikTok video. No, I won't say least deserving of her fame. I'm just saying when you co when you put her in with a bunch of actors, like... I will. We have made it to episode 72 this long-awaited Leo Wilhelm DiCaprio episode. Um, the f other four actors on the wheel, not to be passed over, were Lolita D Davidovich, Eugenio Derbez, shout out to him for replying to us on Twitter. That doesn't happen very often, so we appreciate you. Bill Murray, obviously the other big favorite here. And then Imelda Sun, who would be fun to cover one day. But it doesn't matter, because we're covering Leo. Leo only has 46 credits, acting credits, that is, which is... Pretty remarkable given the impact he's made on the industry. But he, he has more producer credits. He has 50 producer credits. So yep. this man has put a lot of his money behind projects he believes in. And we're going to do our best to cover as much as we can within reason with him. Because most of his film credits are worth talking about. And a lot of his producing credits are worth talking about. But before we get into the minutiae and the roles, James always tries to stump us with some trivia, Fast and Furious style. Let's see what he's got. So for those new listeners, I'm about to read off three facts here. Two of them are going to be true about Leonardo DiCaprio. One of them is not going to be true about him, but will be true about one of the many cast members of the Fast and Furious franchise. I'm going to try my best to trick the guys. They're going to try their best to guess which one isn't about our man, Leo. Fact number one. Was so confident that a co-star of his was going to be nominated for an Oscar that he bet them that if they didn't get nominated, he would get a tattoo of their choosing. But if they did get nominated, he could pick out a tattoo and they would have to get it of his choosing. Fact number two, his films have grossed over $10.3 worldwide at the box office. Fact number three, the longest he has gone between Oscar nominations since his first Oscar nomination is 12 years. Wow. With so much to pick from with Leo, that's a tough set there i think i know mine my unofficial answer is all three are about leo however you guys know that i will play the game <laughs> so i'm gonna say that fact number one is the lie 
And that is about the often imitated but never duplicated Luda. Who did he think was going to win the Oscar? Well, that's where I think he was foolish. I think he thought Vin Diesel was going to win <laughs> for Fast and the Furious 5, but it didn't work out. He was robbed. Everyone knows he was robbed. <laughs> I think you're onto something here, Case, because I, I think you're absolutely correct. I think it's a different actor. I think it is none other than Rick Yoon, who played Johnny Tran in the Fast and the Furious. I'm pretty sure I read that because he lost the bet, Vin Diesel made him get a tattoo that has a huge corona on his thigh that says family behind it. And so he's still still wearing that today. Oh, dude, we got the same tattoo. That's pretty cool, actually. <laughs> I think three is the lie, and I think that is Helen Mirren. Hey, these are good guesses all around. Okay, so the one that no one chose was fact number two, which is that his films have grossed over $10.3 billion worldwide at the box office. That is actually not true. That's a Vin Diesel fact. Uh, Vin Diesel, uh, very well known for his Fast and Furious franchise, as we discussed, as well as Guardian of the Galaxy. However, Leo's films have grossed over $7.2 billion worldwide, and that's despite never doing a sequel to any of his movies. That's the highest grossing actor to never do a sequel by a large margin. The next closest is Matthew McConaughey at $2.1 billion. So that is quite an accomplishment for Leo. That's an awesome fact. Dude, and uh, fact number three, Rigby, you nailed it. Uh, that is a Helen Mirren fact. Oh, shit. Yeah, 1995. She's been nominated three times since then, most re- recent being in 2010, which is 12 years ago. However... Uh, the longest Leo has gone without an Oscar nomination has been 11 years, which was when his first was What's Eating Gilbert Grape in 93 and then The Aviator in 2004. Since then, he's been nominated four times in the following 16 years, with the largest gap being only seven years. So the guy is freakishly accomplished. Yeah. Rigby, you got to say you're heating up because that's two episodes in a row. You got it completely correct. That's right. Oh, dude, you're about to be on fire in the third episode. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> Heat, you're heating up. You have to call it, though. I'm heating up. Yeah, there it is. I just did there it though. The curse is out. the curse is on now. I don't believe in that shit. Neither do you. <laughs> Fact number one's actually the only one that was true. Uh, so he was actually so confident that Tom Hardy would be nominated for his role in The Revenant that he made that bet with Tom Hardy. Tom Hardy was so confident that he wouldn't that he agreed to the bet. And now Tom Hardy famously has a tattoo very prominent on his bicep that says in bold letters. Leo knows all. <laughs> Apparently, they're like very good friends outside of this. He even uh, Leo actually even thanked him in his Oscar speech for being such a good friend. But yeah, if you look on Tom Hardy's Instagram, it says very clearly on his arm that Leo knows all. Good job, Jay. That's why I'm here. Always impressing us. That's the first time ever you've only done one truth and two lies. I was blown away that more than triple the next highest grossing actor when it comes to never doing a sequel. It's wildly impressive. Mm -hmm. And never done a superhero movie. So, I mean, pretty remarkable the numbers he pulls given he didn't do those things. Case. Oh, I'm, I'm interested to hear about Leo's snapshot box office history. The last episode, we cover Andy McDowell's box office, and I said it was the wildest one we'd ever had. This episode is the easiest box office I've ever had to look at. Being that DiCaprio became such a uh, big star so fast and young, I didn't have to do a ton of research to know what movies he had a, a good enough role in to you know, be part of the success or be part of the, the failure of movies. And then like you mentioned earlier, he's only got 46 film credits, so it made that a lot easier than some of the other ones we, we have done in the past. I have 26 movies with complete box office information, and only five of them lost money. <laughs> That's just crazy. 
He's in the second highest grossing film on our box office with Titanic. And you guys know the first one being the Avengers movie. Plus, that movie is one of his best return on investment films. The film grossed $2.2 billion, $200 million budget. Another good office or box office compared to budget is his project with Baz Luhrmann that we'll talk about later, Romeo and Juliet, which grossed $148 million against only a $14 million budget. Straight money, his biggest box office bomb was Quick and the Dead, which lost $13 million. And then his worst box office to budget is the movie Total Eclipse which only grossed $340,000 on an $8 million project. That would explain why it's impossible to find. Impossible. Literally impossible. I felt like everyone, every dad had the quick and the dead VHS. Yeah. Not enough, apparently, though. (laughs) Speaking of quick and the dead, do you all know the story between him and Sharon Stone as it relates to the budget for this film? Yeah, that she paid his salary. I thought that was pretty cool. Finally, he's eighth in average budget. 70 million per film. Total box office gross, seventh with over 7 billion, like James talked about before. Star Meter, he's fifth, ranking 123 at time of recording. Critic rank, he's ranked 12th at 64.3%. Fan ranking, he's fifth at 71%. Two different box office metrics I use to compare everybody. He's ranked 22nd and 35th. And his final Munson's rank is third. Behind Maggie Smith and Emma Thompson. Dames. He's behind the dames. That's right. You guys just talked about this. That's super impressive because he's not been in a superhero movie. He hasn't been in a a franchise sequel. He also hasn't been in a children's movie. So those are the three giant moneymakers, and he's done none of them, yet he ranks incredibly high on our comparative ranking so aka rigby loves him yeah you'll see why i love him because those three not so much sequels because sequels can be done well yeah no no superhero movies movies and no animated pictures that's rigby's wet dream to clarify he's been in no sequels of his own successful movies but he has been in uh, one sequel and case i believe you're covering it today (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah we're getting a little box office smash hit by the name of Critters 3. Critters 3 and Shutter Island are the only two horror genre films that he's been in. It's interesting. He's This dude's got a wildly interesting and su- successful career. So we're going to say Critters 3 is going to be first major role, which is 91. So before that, the early days of Leo. And this was like, for me, the exciting stuff because seen a lot of Leo films. So kind of researching the early days of Leo before he got big, that's what interested me most. He was born in L.A. in 74. He was named after a Da Vinci painting. Um, his mother had an eye for art. So that's where that's where it comes from. Kyle, I, I read a story uh, that his mom was looking at a painting by Leonardo mm-hmm. da Vinci and while she was pregnant with him and he kicked. And that is when the parents decided on the name. I mean, that's a reasonable choice. I was almost named Schlitz because my dad opened a can of beer and I kicked apparently at the same time. So fortunately, my mom and dad didn't use the same logic. Schlitz case. (laughs) So his first acting credit on his IMDb is actually Romper Room from 1979 when he was five years old. He did an episode of that and apparently he was wildly disruptive on set. So his acting career almost took a, a huge dive right away at five years old because he was a pain in the ass. But which five-year-old isn't a pain in the ass on a movie set? Let's be honest. I mean, if that's the name of the show, shouldn't you show up disruptive? Romper Room? I mean, come on, let's go. I guess, like, 
thinking about his adolescence and teenage years, you know, he dropped out of high school when he was a junior. He ended up getting his GED later. But during that time, especially in the late 80s, so right, you know, right on the onset of his teenage years, he started doing a bunch of commercials. And the, the list of brands that he did commercials for is pretty impressive. Anywhere from Mattel, so like Hot Wheels cars, Kraft, Bubble Yum, Apple Jacks. So lots and lots of commercial work in, in the early days of acting. Leonardo Wilhelm DiCaprio, it doesn't roll off the tongue. And his uh, agent at the time when he was a young kid was like, hey, you're, you're not getting a lot of roles. And we think it's because of your name being so difficult to pronounce. Why don't you go by the name Lenny Williams? And uh, he politely declined. And obviously things worked out for him. He, I'm glad he didn't take that guy's advice. Right. Lenny Williams sounds like he should be Porn. playing poker in some den somewhere in Brooklyn or something. Lenny Williams is a utility infielder in the late 70s. <laughs> After he decides to keep his name, he's doing a little bit more acting on the TV side. He does an episode of The Outsiders in 90. does an episode of Santa Barbara Soap in 1990. He also got a nomination, the first of two nominations at this time for Best Young Actor in a Daytime Series for his one episode. Man, Warren would be so proud of him for his his nomination. But that's pretty cool. You're 16 years old, and you're getting recognized for one episode at 16. So a couple episodes of The New Lassie uh, between 89 and 90. Does an episode of Roseanne in 91. Roseanne's huge at the time, so that's a, that's a big get there. Mm-hmm. And then his first recurring role was in the show Parenthood. He played Gary from 90 to 91. He did 12 episodes, got another Best Young Actor in a Daytime Series nomination, this time for more than one episode, but garnering some more acclaim. And this is also the time when something called the Pussy Posse starts to come together. So we know about the Rat Pack, the Brat Pack, right? We know all about all these groups. Learned about the Pussy Posse, which was a collection of young actors. You know, we're talking 17, 18, 19 year old actors uh, new on the scene who go out together, hang out, party together at clubs. And that group included Leo, David Blaine. Ever heard of him? <laughs> fucking magician. <laughs> Toby McGuire, who they're still best friends to this day. Kevin Connolly of Entourage fame. Ethan Soupley you know from being the big guy in a lot of movies yeah oh yeah what about Earl? q-tip even for a little bit and a few others but it was this group of young guys who knew that they were all trying to be big and kind of betting on who would be the next big star and obviously leo was the one who jumped to the forefront out of all of them but there's a wild stories if you read online about these guys and the one i read was about elizabeth berkeley apparently she was like dating somebody at the time and they kept trying to get her to come back. And they're basically like, fuck your boyfriend, like come hang out and party with us. And I, I guess uh, her boyfriend did not take too kindly. Yeah, I can imagine if the pussy posse is coming after your uh, your girlfriend, you're in a lot of trouble. I would have no problem beating the shit out of Kevin Connolly's five foot ass. Please <laughs> say some shit like that to my fiance. I'll, I'll stuff you in a locker. Right. <laughs> the thing that I so I was looking through his filmography. And there was something I just noticed on there. It was a film that didn't really have any like acclaim or anything. It was called Don's Plum. And I didn't even have it on the show notes originally. It came out in 01. And then I learned by reading about the Pussy Posse, it was a, sh- a movie made basically and produced by the Pussy Posse. And so all the er- characters in the movie 
are all of the Pussy Posse members, and apparently it was so misogynistic and terrible that both Leo and Tobey Maguire like rallied to keep it from being shown at Sundance. Like, they made the movie and then they immediately regretted it. And so it's available on YouTube, and I'm fucking pissed that I didn't watch it. It's a black and white movie that I just kind of clipped my way through. Ooh. But just it kind of goes to show the chaos of this group there in the 90s. And now they've all gone their separate ways and are like married, and Leo's still single. <laughs> still a bachelor. I did learn, though, that while he started off in that lifestyle, uh, River Fe- he looked up to River Phoenix as an actor professionally. And he's like, I thought he was wise beyond his years when it came to acting, especially in like a role like Stand By Me, where he, you know, he's this young kid and he's a little older than me, but he was, you know, playing, you know, like uh, essentially this like mature adult version of it. It's like, and then I saw him at a party that I was at, and 20 minutes later he overdosed. And he's like, and after that I was like, all right, I think I'm going to cut back on the hard partying here. Obviously, he's still very much uh, a ladies' man, but now he like is giving other young actors advice on how to like avoid hard drugs. I think there was something that, uh, he mentioned to Timothy Chalamet: oh, no drugs, no superhero movies. That's what yeah, he there he goes: him. no drugs, no superhero movies. That's what he told him. Wise, wise words. I love it. Right to Rigby's heart. So let's get into first major role, though. It's 1991's Critters 3 and KSAS. So Critters 3 is a science fiction comedy horror film released in 1991. Plot of the movie is pretty straightforward. Critters are furry alien creatures that I guess are on Earth to eat. I don't really know because I didn't go down the uh, Critters rabbit hole. I just picked it up in the third installment. Because I opted to watch more DiCaprio movies. They look like Furbies, but like mean. Yeah. They're like angry gremlins. Yeah. Yeah. The plot of the movie is that while on a family trip, this family stops at a rest stop. And while they're parked there, one of the, a critter lays eggs under the family truck. They go home. These critters go into this apartment, terrorize the people that live in the apartment. That's the movie. Yes. The best scenes of the movie and the ones that you do laugh at are the scenes where... The critters are all in a room by themselves just laughing and drinking Dawn soap and eating baked beans and farting and <laughs> all this other just no- just nonsense. And it is funny. DiCaprio's first major role, and it's really fun to watch him in this movie knowing his career and what he ends up as 30 years later. Yeah. He's iconic as an actor now, and to watch him in that early role is really interesting. One of the interesting things is he does set the tone early in his career for some salty language. As a uh, young teenager in this movie, he has a lot of swear words. And as a lot of y'all might remember, uh, a couple years ago, I think it's 2020, GQ ranked him second all time for most swearing in a movie. This probably started that out for him. It's a bad movie, but it's fun to watch and just talk about it if you watch it. If you watch the preview for this movie... It's one of those like classic, corny, it's self-aware. It's like, in Critters 1, we did this. In Critters 2, we did this. Now in Critters 3, you know, and you're like, all right, they get it. It's like a B movie from the 80s where it's like, most people aren't coming to watch this sober. Like, you know what you're in for. Yeah. Yes. It's, it's like a Gremlins version of the Evil Dead movies. Yeah. Yes. Just very campy, self-aware, make fun of itself, have have a good time. It was fun to watch. Yep. Well worth the $3 to rent. For sure. I enjoyed it. What I noticed watching him was he reminded me a lot of a young Devin Sawa from 
roles like little giants. He, they looked almost identical with their little like the the comb over hair. Yeah, I was just gonna say their hair is like very very similar. Yep. Hair was identical. Little heart throbs. Obviously, their careers have gone in very different directions, and I like Devin So. I like some of the stuff he's done, but that's who it reminded me of watching him in Critters Three. Thing, yeah. Keeping it moving, c- coming off Critters 3. So Growing Pains, big show there in the early mid-90s. He was on 23 episodes of that over two years. So that's pretty cool. He's doing, doing a pretty big sitcom at the time. Mm-hmm. And then the movie role that really put him on the map, which was What's Eating Gilbert Grape. He played Arnie, a movie that got him Oscar and Golden Globe noms. I will say that this was my first introduction to him. My sister made me watch this movie when I was a little kid. My sister, Laura, who's been on the pod, I didn't know who he was outside of it. And I truly thought that he was like special needs because of how good he was in that performance. I was like, wow, that that kid's great. And she's like, you know that that's the dude from Titanic or something like later on. I was like, wait, what? (laughs) I was like, who are we talking about here? Yeah, apparently he after this movie he'd go out in public appearances and that people would be genuinely shocked that he wasn't especially. It says something about his acting ability that he he could have done like the heartthrob thing, just like taking the easy paycheck, but took this challenging role and ran with it and set himself up for being you know one of the biggest movie stars in Hollywood history because of it. Mm-hmm. So more power to him. To me, this is his most impressive role because he's nineteen plays a role with this much nuance and doesn't turn into a caricature. Mm-hmm. Like that's really hard to do for full grown adult actors. Yeah. Yeah. Let alone somebody who's 19 and has been on like two movie sets at, until this point. The maturity of that, like it's so, it's such a delicate role that like to do that at that age is really impressive. Well, same year he's in this boy's life played Tobias alongside Robert De Niro and Ellen Barkin. I haven't seen the movie, but I did watch a clip where he and Robert De Niro getting fucking like all out brawl and De Niro almost chokes him out. And I'm like, Jesus, man, this kid is again, 19 years old and is going toe to toe with De Niro. Mm -hmm. This kid's fucking good. I know the scene that you're talking about. And and if you don't know the, the dynamic in the movie, De Niro plays Leo's new stepfather. Who's like physically and emotionally abusive to him. It's a really intense movie, but it's just like you said, the fact that, he was with De Niro, who at this time, you know, early 90s, coming off of Goodfellas, like De Niro's, he and Jack Nicholson are probably like the kings of Hollywood at this point. Yeah. Agree. Right after that, he did Quick and the Dead, played Kid. Sam Raimi movie we talked about. Sharon Stone paid his salary. She wanted to work with him much. Um, sound like the movie didn't do well financially, but he's in a Western. A little bit different. Wildly entertaining. I, that movie is fun to watch. Gene Hackman's great in there. Sharon Stone, I thought, even did a good job. I, I enjoyed that movie a lot. I, I'm guessing at least one person on here will disagree with me, but I thought it was fun as hell, and anytime it's on, I'd definitely watch it. So I've actually never seen this, but I, I in my research, I, I found that this was Russell Crowe's first American movie. Really? Okay. He was in that one um, Anthony Hopkins movie that we did for... Uh, oh, yeah. What did we do for... Who do we... Oh, Tony Collette? Mm-hmm. All I remember from this movie was the introduction to tournaments in my life, which (laughs) started to dominate me as a small child where I just wanted everyone to face off in tournaments. There was Mortal Kombat, March Madness, playoffs. I was like, oh, it's such a cool process. As long as somebody got eaten by a tiger at the end, right? That's hilarious. (laughs) Important. Very important. Technically, his largest audience gap is Total Eclipse, as we mentioned earlier, but you literally can't find it anywhere. So Rigby is supposed to cover it couldn't find it. He re- Leah replaced River Phoenix in this movie alongside David Thewlis, but it is 
not even available to rent on Amazon. I don't even think Mike Rodmaker could track a DVD down. You know what I'm saying? Let's not say something we don't believe. I think I looked and I want to say like there was a copy of it on Amazon, but for like $54 or something. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, <laughs> it's a collector's item. So I was like, I texted Kyle. I'm like, I'll just do the next, uh, the next one down the list. I think. Yeah. It's a, it's a 61 22 split. So pretty, pretty low on the critic side. I read an article and a critic was saying that this was the only movie he's ever done with a female director. It's interesting. Interesting. Especially because about this same time, you know, Catherine Bigelow is one of the biggest names in Hollywood. She was doing those major, those roles, you know, like Heat and, and all that other stuff that all these big actors were wanting to be in. One reason that I think this movie may be impossible to find is because I think that Leo is naked in it. Really? I, I don't know if it's full frontal, but he, I think he may show some, some backside at least, at the very least. Some sweet cheeks. There's at least two women in the world listening to this podcast that are looking at uh, trying to find stills of that online. So because we couldn't find the actual largest audience gap, uh, we went to the next best option, which happened to be in the same year, which is The Basketball Diaries, where he plays Jim and Rigby has it. So to be candid, I didn't watch the full movie because, again, it's not available for rent anywhere in the United States, which is crazy to me because The Basketball Diaries is a film from 1995 that's based off a 1978 autobiographical novel by Jim Carroll. And that is who Leo DiCaprio plays in this. It's a book that takes place in the 60s, but it's been rewritten to present day, uh, 95 New York City. So Leo DiCaprio plays a high school student at a private school in New York, successful basketball star who, after going through some trouble in his personal life, descends into a world of drugs and addiction and heroin. And it's you can kind of tell where this is going. You know, he hangs out with the wrong crowd and gets badly influences and stuff happens in his personal life that he can't really grasp his addiction and it overcomes his it overcomes his you know everyday life and he loses you know his basketball skills and everything seems to be going to hell so what i did for this movie i've seen it i saw it probably 15 or 20 years ago but there are snippets of it online on youtube all of them featuring dicaprio and i wanted to highlight a few of them one there is a uh there's a particularly intense school shooting scene in this movie. I read online that a few family members of uh, victims who died in school shooting have actually brought this movie up in like lawsuits that they brought because it it may have influenced their killers to to act out. Because if you watch it, there's like there's a scene where Leo is dreaming about killing his uh, classmates, and he's wearing like a long black trench coat, has a shotgun, wearing like the big military style boots. Um, that obviously is reminiscent to what we think of when we think of like Columbine. Happened. Columbine happened ninety seven, right? Columbine was ninety nine. Do you guys know my um, adherence to Roger Ebert's advice and reviews? So he actually didn't like this movie, and he didn't like DiCaprio's performance. It lays the seeds to his his acting style, which is like so intense and so so commanding that it almost might seem like overacting in some cases. And I think that probably rings more true in this movie than a lot of, you know, The Wolf of Wall Street and, and movies that we'll see down the road. I like this movie. It's, it's intense. It's, it's a really tough watch. A young Mark Wahlberg is also in it. Juliette Lewis, Lewin Bracco, the woman in Goodfellas and Sopranos plays his mom. You know, it's a famous movie because it was a, it's a big cult movie. I know, like, I remember my cousins who were, like, 10 years older than me, so I would have been, like, six. They were, like, they were in high school at the time, and it was, like, a big movie for them because it's, like, 
plays like a depressed, like drug addicted high school student and they, they wanted to, to go see it. So good. It's a pretty heartbreaking performance, but it ends, you know, kind of how you think it would, whether he finds sort of redemption at the end. And it's, it's intense. There's a lot of gay sex and drugs and he has to turn some tricks to, to feed his addiction. And it's, it's young Leo at his best for sure. Where do you sit on the audience gap there? 76, 47. Um, I'd probably give it like a mid fifties. Split the difference there. It's not awful, but it's not definitely not great either. This is his first leading role, right? He's the focal point of the story. Again, it's an autobiographical story, and he plays the the uh, title character. So, all right. I read that him and Mark Wahlberg hated each other on the set of this movie. It certainly plays out in The Departed years later. As Ricky was talking, I wanted to see how many movies they've done since then, and they don't do any until The Departed, so... You'll never be a cop. (laughs) They'll rekindle (laughs) those feelings. Effectively, I might add. A couple years before Largest Critic Gap, here in the the big one there, his next big leading role was in 96's Romeo and Juliet. Plays Romeo. Pretty big movie, and his first of a couple times with Baz Luhrmann in a role that I remember I watched it in high school in an English class. After reading some Shakespeare, we watched this to kind of compare and contrast. And I, I hadn't seen it since then. And it's got some serious style. It's got a lot of drip to it. Baz Luhrmann's fingerprints are all over this thing, man. Are you a Baz fan? Because I am not. But I respect that he is unapologetically going to make every movie he does a fucking hardcore Baz movie. Yeah. When you look at like this and then Elvis, this that past year, like he hasn't skipped a beat. He's still just himself. He hasn't. Every movie is like so fucking Baz. Like he refuses to do anything that isn't yep. wildly over the top stylistically. It's the it's the Romeo and Juliet. So they use the Romeo and Juliet language that Shakespeare wrote. You know, back in the back in the fourteen hundreds or whenever he wrote it. And but it's placed in like modern day Los Angeles. So if you can get over that, you can enjoy the movie. But I've always had a tough time getting over that for some reason. Same. I've tried every Baz movie and it is just never been for me. And I, I understand that some people love it and I could see it, but it's just I can't I can't get over the the style choices that he always makes. Hey, with all that said, I give a shout out to Leo because he's probably the best part of this movie. He's he is balls to the wall going all in on Shakespearean language. He who is a certified heartthrob after this movie. Like he it put him on the map in a lot of ways. I heard I heard of this movie before I'd heard of William Shakespeare, if that makes sense. So like I think this probably this movie probably opened up a lot of eyes and ears to William Shakespeare, who is, you know, one of the greatest cultural legends this world's ever seen. So there's something to say about that, I guess. Romeo and Juliet have such a cultural impact for a story that is really fucking dark. It's so dark. Yeah. You think of it's like, oh, it's a love story. It's like eh, a little heavier than that, actually. <laughs> it's young love. It's like, no, it goes it goes pretty dark pretty quick. Yeah, that that's what those tragedies were all about. Somebody had to die unexpectedly at the end. So four years into his career, he's already a leading man on the verge of one of the massive movies in history. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Absolutely. Accurate. Well, before we get to that big movie that you so referenced, there's one other one in there, and that's 96's Marvin's Room. He played Hank alongside Dan Hedaya, Meryl Streep, Diane Keaton. Supporting role. What I can say, uh, even though I hadn't seen this movie, is I saw a quote from Leo in which he mentioned this was when he realized how much work goes into acting when he saw Meryl Streep, where mm-hmm. he's like, every scene she did, she was the most natural-looking 
person in every scene. He's like, okay, I need to, I need to step my game up. Just so everybody's on the same page, the only person to get nominated for an Oscar from this movie was Diane Keaton. But the big one there, largest critic gap, is 1997's Titanic. And Aubrey was supposed to cover this one. We didn't really reassign this one because I think everybody listening knows the movie Titanic, knows the story of Titanic. So we don't really need to do a full review on this one. We would just say, hey, Aubrey would have done it more justice than us. Absolutely. But I think we could talk about just like the impact of Titanic, of how big this movie was and what it did for his career. When it came, when it came out, I didn't know a single person who didn't like this movie. It was like man, woman, any age was like, Oh, it was great. It's, it's a Cameron spectacle and it's, it's him at his best. Yeah. Did you guys have the double VHS? Tapes. I did, yeah, yeah. I did. <laughs> Forgot about the double VHS tape. Oh, yeah, the double. I mean, this movie's, what, three hours and change? Yeah, it's right. Around, it's like 190, probably, something like that. Three hours and 14 minutes. When I was younger, I remember it being sexier than it actually is. Uh, in re-watching it, yeah. there's not really any sex whatsoever. And when I was younger, I think it was just the fact that I saw Kate Winslet's boobs. I was like, oh, my God. Oh, this is amazing. And then rewatching, it's like, yeah, you see your topless. And then it's like a sweaty hand on a window. And that's about all the intimacy, mm-hmm. like physical touching that you see. The rest of it's all emotional. I, I love Titanic. I think it's really well done and it's great. a great movie. I just, mm-hmm. I don't really enjoy either DiCaprio or Kate Winslet in this movie, to be perfectly honest with you. The best, a- the best actor in this movie is Kathy Bates. I completely agree with that. Oh, I thought you were going to say Billy Zane. Or Billy Zane. Yeah, Billy Zane's excellent. Well, Billy Zane's such a good asshole. <laughs> Listen to your friend Zane. He's a cool dude. <laughs> uh, yeah. For sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, what an incredible yeah, she, song. She was able to live off that for the rest of her life, that song. Play that. I mean, think about the iconic moments that have shared in pop culture since then. Oh, actually, Bill Paxton's probably the best actor in this movie. What am I talking about? I forgot about Billy P. I learned a wild fact is that while they were filming this movie, James Cameron took Bill Paxton actually down to the deck of the Titanic, re-emerged, they missed 9-11. Whoa! (laughs) It was on September 11th. What? And they came up, and the towers had fallen, and they were told by the cast of like the people who were working there, like, it's a true story, dude. There's video of it. There's video, and it's Bill Paxton going, James, worst terrorist attack in U.S. history just happened. At least he's an alibi, you know? <laughs> yeah. So it was three miles yeah, underneath the ocean. It certainly was not me. That's crazy. <laughs> it frightens me you're trying to come up with an alibi for 9-11. I wasn't yeah. worried about having an alibi. Uh, I just yeah, thought it, that wasn't it on, might make that someone wasn't laugh. on my list so. either. Things to do. <laughs> this movie had something for everybody, though. It was like, yeah. you wanted the action, it was there. You wanted the drama, it was there. You wanted the romance, it was there. Yep. And the history lesson. And uh, it's like a too big to fail lesson that you get from this. And then in there is a more nuanced kind of socioeconomic love story. You got Bill Paxton with earrings. Yeah. You got everything you wanted. And you forgot a dramatic Canadian singer. Something for everybody. The entire North American continent. And the thing I read is that uh, Leo turned down a role in Boogie Nights for this movie. Which still would have been awesome, but great move on his part. What role? Was it Mark Wahlberg's role? 
also speaking of 9-11, Mark Wahlberg famously said that uh, if he was on that plane, it wouldn't have gone down like that. What a fucking idiot. Yeah, he's so stupid, bro. <laughs> what a meathead. <laughs> Huge movie, man. And if wherever Leo was, career-wise, uh, this uh, took him to a different stratosphere and made him the one of the most famous people in the world. Hey, what did this win awards for? Best picture, best director. Oh my God, like everything. Winslet was nominated. Is that what it was? Winslet was nominated, yeah. Okay. It got nominated for one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven Oscars. At the time, it, I think it had won, it had tied the most with Ben Hur, I want to say. And then I think it was passed in uh, Lord of the Rings Return of the King. I think that won like 12, I want to say. Or maybe it tied with that 11, but I think. Those are the three yeah. with the most. You know what's wild is him and Winslet, their two careers took separate paths, and now they're kind of doing similar types of roles. Yeah. That's really kind of cool to think about. I've never thought about that until now. We'll return back to her in nine years, too. Before the Willennium hits in 2000, a couple roles and a couple like important personal things to note. Number one, coming off Titanic, all that money that comes from that, he started the Leonardo DiCaprio Foundation, so started his own foundation in 98. Very cool. Very cool, right? You take all that wealth, put it into something that's important and helpful. And then he's in Case's favorite movie, The Man in the Iron Mask. Plays King Louis, Philippe, alongside our boy Gabe Byrne, 98. Wait, he doesn't just play Philippe. King Louis and Philippe. Yeah. Two different people, sir. Two different people. That's called range, bro. Range. Did I say and? I thought I said I and. Didn't, right? I didn't hear and. You made it sound like it was one person. <laughs> Did did he steal the show from Gabe Byrne and the Man in the Iron Mask? I forget. Uh, it's been a minute. Melkovich stole the show in that movie. Usually the case with him. He's doing well with all these huge, famous, super talented actors and actresses. It's so impressive. That same year, he does a Woody Allen picture. He does the movie Celebrity. He plays Brandon alongside Sam Rockwell. Never seen it. But a Woody Allen picture there in the late 90s. It's kind of an odd choice given, but he he's Leo said that he'll try pretty much anything. But apparently not so much to do more than 46 credits, so he's not taking anything. Wasn't Bigelow and James Cameron together? Yeah. So that explains why Caprio maybe never did a Catherine Bigelow movie. Probably not. (laughs) (laughs) He was Team Cameron the whole way. Oh, I mean, after what he did for his career, I'd be Team Cameron, too. I'd be on the deck with him on 9-11. I'd be doing everything (laughs) right. And then the thing that I know Rigby really wanted to talk about was... Leo's dating life because we talked about it with Michael Sheen and how much of a surprising playboy he's been throughout his career. And then there's Leo, which is a whole different world. So coming off Titanic, where you're the heartthrob of heartthrob, and you're the one of the most famous people in the world, he starts dating somebody named Giselle. Dates are from 99 to 2005. Tom Brady's sloppy second. Mm. And James loves to hear that. Well, clearly she downgraded after Leo. Leo. Now she dates a cheating, narcissistic psychopath. Speaking of heartthrob, didn't he get like chased through Paris or something for like hours, and he had to get help from the police from a bunch of female fans? Tom Brady? No, uh, DiCaprio. <laughs> hey man, we all know Tom Brady ain't un- outrunning anybody for hours. No, no, he's <laughs> not known for his speed. Yeah, DiCaprio is definitely a scrambling quarterback. That's <laughs> <laughs> what makes him like the perfect person for this podcast because it's just like. Not only does he have like the the career to be one of the Hollywood the biggest stars in Hollywood, but like he's got the personal life that just like is all over the place and so much fun to cover. So I think recently there's been like a backlash against him because 
of the age range that he does not date above. While I will acknowledge that is bizarre. Think of how long this guy's been in the limelight and how long he's been publicly dating very famous people and how little negative press there is about this man. Amazing. It's like he's always dating some supermodel and then it's like, oh, and they broke up. And it's like, oh, he's dating another supermodel. It's like, oh, they broke up. And like, no one is saying like, oh, he's such a piece of shit. He did this. It's like, ah, yeah, it just didn't work out. Like, what are you going to do? Whoever his publicist (laughs) is, I hope is just rolling in the dough right now because they're really good at their job. Because yeah, they, he gets pictures taken of himself all the time, but that's really all you see is pictures. You don't see any, you don't read any stories about him cheating or any sort of fights or anything. It's just, it's really well done on his part. I did find an article in my research where he had a fight with his girlfriend. She hit him with a wine bottle. I kept waiting to see what the cause of it was. And the story ended with, and he did press charges. So she basically just yeah, assaulted and- him. <laughs> <laughs> she went to jail for two years. <laughs> it's a serious assault, man. That's assault, brother. Anyways, how's your sex life? Um, <laughs> enough about his sex life. Let's get to the Willennium's new picture. And that is his one and only Razzie nomination for his role in The Beach in 2000. James is going to talk about it. So I had never seen this movie until watching it for this podcast. And all I knew of it was that when it came out, everyone said it sucked. And it's like, oh, this movie's terrible, blah, blah, blah. And upon watching it, it is not as bad as people said, or at least I was led to believe it was. Um, I think it suffered from the fact that he was such a megastar and people had such high hopes for it, and it just didn't live up to those expectations. It, it's based on a novel that by Alex Garland that came out a few years prior, and it's got a 21% critic score and a 57% audience score. And I would say uh, I'd fall a little bit below the audience score where like all the parts are there for a good movie. It just doesn't come together. There are some scenes that are absolutely cringe-inducing, but like you're waiting for it to be a good movie. It just never really happens. It centers around a young, kind of like nicotine-addicted traveler, uh, which is played by Leo, and he is just kind of looking for adventure in life. He leaves America and goes to Bangkok. So he's in a hostel in Bangkok, and he's making friends with all the other travelers that are all fairly young. And there's this one dude who looks like he's just like yipped out on drugs, screaming in the hallway so much so that he busts his head pretty much through the window to like talk to Leo. And because Leo's looking for adventure in life, he listens to this man instead of being like, dude, get the fuck out of my room. And the guy starts talking about this island and it's, oh, it's this legend and you should go there, but you shouldn't go there if you're not really ready for it, blah, blah, blah. And so he just thinks the guy's like, fucking around because he's on drugs and then the next day is found leo finds him and he's committed suicide and he's left a map to this island as like his death note and so leo takes the map and goes on this adventure and he convinces this young hot french couple to come with him and like from there it very much feels like and i know we've covered this in on this podcast before but very much feels like I bet as a book, this was super fascinating. Mm -hmm. Uh, But as a movie, it's just like a bunch of stories that don't really fully come together. And so like there's a romance part of it, uh, like a a tribal kind of Lord of the Flies part of it. There's uh, some, you know, shark infested water story. There's gang stories and like none of them are that impactful. And so it's this like beautifully shot movie 
that you're waiting to get good and it just doesn't. And then by the third act, you kind of get like, okay, this actually isn't going anywhere. You know, they add like a apocalypse now vibe to it out of nowhere. And you're like, all right, now I get why people say it sucks. It's because it has all the makings of something good and just never gets good. I don't think Leo deserved his Razzie nomination. I think without him, this movie is a complete catastrophe. However, in the third act, they try to do like a kind of like a montage of him going insane and it's so, so shitty. It's him pretending to be in a video game and it comes out of nowhere and it's like, oh, look, he's going nuts. And it's just like, it's, it's very badly done. And he's very bad in those scenes. But I think the reason why people dunked on this is because he was coming off of such amazing performance in Titanic and he got paid a fuck ton of mo- money for this. I think he got paid $20 million just for this movie. Wow. wow. Yeah, did he? I knew he was doing $20 million as his fee. So he said it after Titanic. Yep. I just didn't know when he started. But that makes sense. Coming off Titanic, you're like, fucking pay me. 100%. Pay me. And he got that money, and this movie got horrific reviews, but still did fairly well at the box office and made money. People are coming to see him. Um, and it was more of a backlash against like, oh, oh, we thought like every movie you were going to be in was going to be good, and this one just kind of sucks. <laughs> the girl in it again? Tilda Swinton. Tilda Swinton is, uh, it's not, she's not like the love interest. She's like the tribe leader. Okay. The love interest is a, a French actress who I'd never seen before. Waiting for the love story to get going, it like kind of gets going, but not really that much. Like everything's just like half ass. And I bet in a book where you got like a couple hundred pages, you could really flush out these stories, but you couldn't really do it in a movie. Mm-hmm. And James, I feel like an idiot wondering why he's only done 46 movies. And then I just connected the dots that if you were charging $20 million to do a role, that there's not many pictures that can pay you that no. and feel confident doing it. No. no, that's why he has less than 50 credits. Yeah. You get to pick and choose what you want at that point. Economics at that point. They're like, ah, I can't fucking pay you 20 million dog. James, did you come across much information about the uh, negative press this received during filming? Yes. So I saw that one there is like a pseudo plot line in this movie where they don't want people to come to this beach because they're going to ruin their paradise. And ironically enough, that actually happened in real life in Thailand, (laughs) where they were like, like, they're like, Hey, like you can't give anyone a map to this place because we don't want them to come here and then ruin it. And then in real life, that is exactly what happened. And, uh, Thailand government officials were one obviously disappointed with how that beach was treated and how touristy it became. But two, they were also really disappointed with how Thailand was portrayed in this movie where it was like a, a lawless drug culture. And I, I'm not going to lie and pretend like I know a lot about Thailand, but I do know that they were very much upset with how things went down with the production of this. Well, they must have had a big time problem with hangover three then. Yeah, <laughs> no shit. <laughs> fucking monkey and hangover three and i read some articles on how dicaprio was trying to kind of soothe everything over i wonder because he's a noted environmentalist at this point right i wonder if this kind of kicked that off of of having this brought to his attention at this age and at this point of his career maybe he did start his production company in 2001 coming right after this so there's probably a decent assumption is that his role in this led him to wanting to create his own production company. Okay. We talked about the production company. We talked about Don's Plum, the other movie here in 2002 to mention is Gangs of New York. He plays Amsterdam alongside Cameron Diaz and the first of many collaborations with Marty Scorsese. Number one, I think he's just expanding the range a ton, right? Because this is probably his first action movie. 
even though Quick and the Dead was an action movie, he's having to do a lot more. Critters 3 is an action movie. Kid. He's having to do a lot more physical acting in this one. And uh, we're, we're starting to see accents yeah. out of our boy here. And uh, according to a lot of fans and critics, not a very good accent in this movie, but we see one. Daniel Day-Lewis showpiece for me. It's Yes, it, it is. Yeah, it, it's. I think Leo's great, and I think Cameron Diaz is great in it, but like this is Daniel Day-Lewis in his bag completely. You know, it's yeah. over-the-top, complete caricature of someone from that time period. It's about DDL and Liam Neeson. Yep. Kind of Cameron and Leo take second fiddle in this one. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't happen very often, man. No, <laughs> no, no, not at all. But that leads us to highest critic score. So our, our final review before we just get into a, just a gauntlet of good movies here. And this is a good one, too. This is uh, Catch Me If You Can, a role that got him a golden gold nom. And it's my review. I had never seen Catch Me If You Can before, believe it or not. Lucky man. I know. This was fun for me. Every once in a while, you run into the highest critic score you haven't seen. And this was one of those few times. So directed by Steven Spielberg. So you could see these huge director names popping up over and over again. It was Nominated for two Oscars, Christopher Walken for Best Supporting Actor and John Williams for Score. Uh, the score is a no-brainer. Yeah, the, the score is unbelievable. I, I agree. The score is very. I'd always heard this because I listen to a lot of movie scores when I do work and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And and scores from this movie will come up. So I'd, I'd heard that before I decided to see the movie. He got a Golden Globe nom for his role as Frank, a notorious con man, a very young con man, albeit too. I mean, we're talking at 18, 17, 18, 19 years old. Uh, he looks a little bit older than that, but it fits good enough. But it's inspired by a true story. It's it's a cat and mouse game between Frank and Carl Hanratty, who's played by Tom Hanks. So you've got two just top of their game actors going at it here in a cat and mouse game. I didn't know, l- reading about it, that it was first announced in 1981, and it took a long time for them to make the picture. Do you guys know who was originally supposed to play the character of Frank in 1981? I don't. I'm going to say Tom Hanks. Good guess. Not Tom Hanks, though. Somebody else that was pretty big in, during that time. Wesley Snipes. No, no white. <laughs> short, white actor. Patrick Swayze. Danny DeVito. <laughs> no, man, no, but you're in the short category. Uh, he played Gaylord Fokker's dad. That's the Oh, okay. Actually, I could see that. Really? Dustin Hoffman yeah. was originally supposed to play this role in 1981. So I thought that was interesting. Apparently... Leo had over 100 costume changes in this film. Like, the costume department was working during this movie because this character as a con man is doing a lot, right? So I thought that was interesting. Um, yep. His first con in the movie, which I thought was fascinating to watch, was showing up to his new school and then convincing his classmates that he was going to teach a French class as a sub for a whole week. <laughs> yeah, because that, <laughs> that dude bullies him. <laughs> <laughs> like, they're having the conversation at the end of the first week, and they just, like, didn't stop him from teaching French. Fridays, like your son's been teaching the French class all week to see your way. <laughs> After that, he successfully convinces people he's a pilot, a doctor, a Harvard grad, that he's 28 when he's really like 19 years old. But there is a scene towards the end as Leo's character is just like slowly going more manic is the scene where he's getting arrested and he's just probably his best acting for the movie when losing his damn mind. Because he's he can't lie his way out of this one. He's been lying his way out of everything up to that point, and the paranoia is just insane. I'm not gonna say it's his best work, but it's a pretty good film. By the end, I I was not shocked that they had recruited the real life Frank into working in the check fraud division of the FBI, and apparently banks have contracted him to help them yeah. make their checks super secure. 
and are paying him millions a year and have been paying him millions a year. So it worked out for him despite all the fraud. I thought that was so fascinating when they, because they kind of cut to the end because midway through it. Cause so, you know, he eventually is getting caught and they're kind of showing the story and how he's like explaining to the FBI, like, no, do you see how this guy does this? He's probably using this type of machine, which means he works in this field. And they're like, what? <laughs> and he's like, like, yeah, all right, hold on. I'll explain. And like, they all have to like shut up and listen as he's like teaching class to them essentially on how to commit fraud. Well, criminal minds approach, right? Hire the criminals, the people who know it to help you track down the bad guys. Yeah. So happy ending for Frank in this one. Am I imagining it? But it didn't like five or six years ago, didn't it come out where somebody was basically disproving all of that Frank guy's claims? Yeah. So I, I read that apparently it's been proven that he's embellished a lot of his stories over the years. You don't say. He embellished them, not the movie. According to what the truth was at the time, but since then it, it's been come out that he embellished a lot of it. Sounds like the Irish. <laughs> so you're telling me we can't trust a liar is what you're telling me. <laughs> a guy who's world famous for lying. <laughs> <laughs> Next, you're going to tell me that all of Jordan Belfort's uh, antics were made up too, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 9689. Kind of shocking. I thought some other Leo pictures would be highest critic score. I didn't realize this would be. But I think the combination of Leo and Tom Hanks together is just potent combo, any way you put it. And Spielberg. Yeah, and Spielberg. I mean, those three together. Was this the only Spielberg movie that he's in? Yeah, I think so. Which is shocking to me. It is. Both of them are just like such big box office giants. Yep. The score, the cast, how it's shot. It's a movie that doesn't feel like it drags at any point. And it's a fairly long movie. And I think that is a testament to how entertaining it is. It's... Yeah, it's fun, and then it's serious, and it's sad, and it's dramatic, and it's action-packed. It's got it all. I was talking about range of gangs in New York. These two movies came out the same year, and look at the, how different these two roles are. Mm-hmm. All right, you guys ready to push our way through through like some fucking ridiculously good roles here? As we move on from Catch Me If You Can, in two thousand three, he gets a special thanks in the movie Bad Santa. I did hours of research, hours of research, and I could not find out. Nobody tells, nobody says why he is, has a special thanks credit at the end of Bad Santa. My theory is it's, it's swearing. Huh. something's wrong with my gear. <laughs> I love that movie. And maybe a listener knows, and, and they'll, they'll tell us what it is, but yeah, I, I spent hours trying to find out why he has that credit. First one here, The Aviator, plays Howard Hughes, 2004, alongside Willem Dafoe. Dafoe is in one scene. Makes an appearance in there, but we're not here to talk about him. This was also Leo's first producing credit. Interesting. And a Golden Globe win, Oscar, BAFTA, and SAGNOP. So you'll notice as I talk about a lot of these, it's going to be me queuing it up with a lot of award nominations. So this is yeah. the next Oscar nom down, down the roll here. And it's the first time I'd ever seen this movie, and it's pretty damn good. But he and Kate Blanchett are awesome in this movie. Just fantastic. Kate Blanchett is Catherine Hepburn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah, Howard Hughes is a very fascinating figure. Yeah, seriously, like yeah, big time film director and like the father of aviation. It's that's a wild combo. Just a philanthropist, businessman, just mm-hmm. had his hands in everything pretty much. And who better to portray a genius madman than Leo DiCaprio? That's what I remember. He goes nuts, right? Like he he loses it. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He was. Oh yeah. Yep. Yeah, especially at the end, at the end, he absolutely lose it. They're like, yeah, he, no one can see in this dude in this kind of state. Doesn't he like seclude himself in like a home movie theater? And he's 
like I, pissing, he's in pissing in jars. In jugs. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's what I remember. Yeah. Is when he was like a recluse by the time he died. He was brilliant. Um, Howard Hughes was. He definitely had some. Mm-hmm. He definitely had some issues for sure. Yep. And this is the first of a few like real people roles too, where and they're biopic roles, and he's got more coming too. Not to take away from James. Well, he's had a couple already, hasn't he? That's what I'm saying. He's he's done it like three three times, I think. Gangs of New York. J. Edgar. Yeah, Gangs of New York, and then Basketball Diaries. Mm-hmm. Critters three. Critters three. We, <laughs> we talked about it with Michael Sheen. Like Sheen has done a ton of biopics and real life characters. Leo's right there with him. Yeah. He's done quite a bit. And you talked about it, him being, you know, his first producing credit. I mean, that's cheating because he's, he doesn't have to pay himself if it doesn't work. <laughs> that's true. Mark the start point. You know, he's betting on himself in this one. I love it. Uh, as, as the lead. 2005, I'm going to try to pronounce this, but probably will butcher it. But the basic gist is he got a recognition from France for contribution to the art. And that's. Somebody want to get take a chance at uh, pronouncing that? Know their French pretty well. Order de art et de lettres. Yeah, that sounds about right. Leo puts on the heavy Boston accent in The Departed. Six a, a role that got him Golden Globe and BAFTA nom. I love The Departed. Love it. Departed, yeah. I think it's great. It's great. Best picture, right? One that year. Yep. Phenomenal film. That that movie is so compelling. Like it, it once you it get you get sucked in. It's true. It's and I'm glad you said that. It's truly like you hear the term like edge of your seat movie. Like mm-hmm. The Departed is like an edge of your seat movie. Mm-hmm. That scene where he's selling the microchips in yeah. in the little like warehouse. I yep. I was supposed to be somewhere, and like 20 minutes, I end up being 20 minutes late because I was like, oh fuck, I got locked in, and it's so easy to not be <laughs> yep. locked in a movie yes. these days with your phone and all sorts of distractions. And I was like, this movie is so fucking good because I, lo- I lost myself. In Je- and it's really Jack Nicholson well, yeah. in those scenes that I get lost in. The guy's incredible. In the- yeah. Leo's awesome in this. So to answer your question, Craig, I haven't disclosed my favorite Leo performance yet, but this is my favorite Leo movie with Leo in it. Oh, wow. Okay. Departed. Departed's a top 10 movie for me. I saw it three times in the theaters. I'm obsessed with it. I still quote it way too much to this day. People are like, what the fuck is that quote from? <laughs> Mainly Alec Baldwin and Mark Wahlberg quotes, but... Yes, those, they're great. <laughs> Alec Baldwin steals every scene he's in. I Yes. I love when he's at the driving range with Matt Damon, and he doesn't give Matt Damon a chance to even speak in the conversation. Mm-hmm. He's like, he got an impeccable record. That's intimidating. A lot of people don't like someone with an impeccable record. He's like, I have an impeccable record. I don't think that's a big deal. He's like, you're married. means your dick works. And like, Matt Damon hasn't said a word. and just <laughs> blasting him with shit. People see, people see the ring and they can they think at least somebody can stand the son of a bitch. <laughs> someone can stand the son of a bitch. <laughs> Damon's great in this because he, in, in scenes where there's not, the alphas around, he acts like this super tough guy, but like you're talking about with like Bald when he's in the same scene as Baldwin or some of those other guys, he just shrivels up and he's just this uh-huh. passive beta. He's great because I fucking hate him. In yeah. This oh, yeah. I hate Matt Damon's character. Mm-hmm. And it's because he's damn good at what he does. Leo is unbelievable in it, uh, especially how they make you feel like his heart rate is ripping out of his chest, trying to keep it cool the whole time. Mm hmm. Yeah. The whole time it's like, oh, they're going to figure him out. And then they don't. And they're like, oh, they're going to figure him out. And then they don't. He's got two movies where fans hate or love his accent. It's The Departed and Blood Diamond. Mm-hmm. Yep. I thought it was entertaining. I don't know how accurate it is as a Boston accent, but I thought it was entertaining. I'm not a co-op. You'll okay, never be a right? co-op. <laughs> <laughs> On the accent side, Case, it's a great transition because I, I want to give a slight apology to 
Leo because in the Michael Sheen episode, I kind of shredded his South African accent a little bit. But I did more research, and to your point, some people say that his portrayal of the South African accent is pretty spot on because it's a really hard accent to do. Yeah. And I'm just an ignorant American, so I guess I didn't really know that much. I just It just sounded off. Trevor Noah it took a shot at him, said he sounded like a drunk garbage man or something. I can't remember what he said, but <laughs> he took some shot at him. It's a tough, I mean, that's a tough accent. It's notoriously one of the hardest accents to replicate, so I give him, I give him credit for trying. And he got Oscar and Gold Globe noms, so apparently he did enough in this movie to be recognized alongside Jaiman and Michael Sheen. Rewatching this, I forgot how incredible Jaiman Hunsu is in this movie. Yeah, he's awesome. He's so good in this movie. Holy shit, he's good. That opening scene is unbelievable. Yeah. And Michael Sheen is in three scenes. And he wasn't in all the background shit that you tried to postulate last time, Craig. <laughs> it's it's a Leo and Jaiman show in this one. And it's a riveting plot. It's a, it's a good movie, man. So that's what Oscar nom number three, Yep. right? Yep. The other interesting note about this is... We're now seeing the first time that he's taking some activism into an actual role and not good point. documentaries and not all those things because this is clear this movie has a clear political agenda. Yep. It's it's a good role. Well, that's important to note too, because if you we'll talk about his producing credit, but really it's like significant producing producing credit start of seven. So a year after Blood Diamond. So I think this was a, a big push for him okay. starting to invest his money into more documentaries and projects. So that's a great point, Case. Connecting the dots. It's like you've done this 71 times. <laughs> You'll never be a cop. <laughs> You'll never be a cop. <laughs> you cock sucker. Revolutionary Road, 2008, a movie uh, where he got a Golden Globe nom, played Frank, another Frank character here. And it's just a lot of yelling. Like the, it, I feel like half of the running time is Leo and... Kate Winslet screaming at each other. Re- returning to the screens for the first time since Titanic and Michael Shannon fucking owning every scene he's in in this movie. He got nominated for an Oscar, I believe. Yeah, I really like this movie. I've always liked it. I think it nails the sort of fake, like, you know, hidden beneath the, lurking beneath the surface 50s that, like, mm-hmm. post-war America, that, that, that just whole look and feel, I think, is really well done in this. And, again, Winslet and DiCaprio, two actors, top of their game, can't really go wrong with it. Great story. It's about a it's about a couple who they live in the suburbs and you know they're they've reached a point in their life where they're kind of at a crossroads and they want to maybe try something else in their life. She wants to move to Paris and he's like just he's up for this new promotion at work. So it's like a it's it's a really good look at conflict and family and yeah it's it's a really good movie yeah their their argument scenes are referenced quite a bit in pop culture which is a theme Mm -hmm. with leo a lot of his movies the gifs that his movies produces are all over pop culture and we'll get into some of those movies here shortly but like this is one of those first intense movie if you like couples yelling at each other this is for you As I'm watching it, because it's been a long time since I've seen it, or re-watching it, I was so impressed by every scene that Michael Shannon was in. I was like, this oh, yeah, dude's fucking great. stealing him. And I look, and I was like, yeah, he's, he's nominated for an Oscar. I was like, well-earned. Awesome in this movie. He makes you so tense in that movie, because you're just like, this guy is about to just explode. There's somebody who isn't like a Jack Nicholson, Tom Hanks, that might earn damn near close to 100 for me. It's Michael Shannon. He murders every time he's on. He goes uh, back to Marty in Shutter Island, and 20 Ted plays Teddy, a movie with a notorious twist that some people love, some people hate. I love this movie. I saw it with a bunch of fraternity brothers, and everyone claimed to see the twist coming from a mile away. And I, 
uh, proudly acknowledged I had no fucking idea until the very end. Everyone's like, oh, bro, you didn't see that coming? I was like, either you guys are all in on some joke and lying, or I am just naive and was totally engrossed in the film and had no idea what was coming. It's it's well done, man. This movie's very well done. It's good. It's it's one of those that I'm not crazy for, but it's it's I'll whenever it's on, I'll watch it, you know? But a little bit different. Yeah, like I said earlier, this is DiCaprio's only horror genre film. Or yeah, psychological thriller, whatever you want to call it. I wish it. he would yeah. do more suspense and thrillers. I agree. I think he's saving up for that, don't you worry. Oh, I hope so. That'd be great. Maybe he'll produce his own because horror films don't have huge budgets normally. True. That can pay for someone $20 million. you got to usually get by on a shoestring. Next movie up is allegedly Case's favorite Leah movie, and that's Inception. Plays Dom, a movie we've talked about a bunch with JGL, Elliot Page, Ken Wanabi, and apparently he took a pay cut in this movie to work with Christopher Nolan from his normal $20 million because he wanted to be in it that badly. Also says he still can't explain it to this day. I will second Case's uh, statement. This is my favorite Leo movie. I don't care that it's become like something that film Twitter wants to mock because they've now had 10, 15 years to dissect the plot and say how deep it isn't or whatnot. This movie blew my mind with special effects. It's my favorite science fiction movie of all time. Um, I think it is absolutely a blast to watch. And I don't care if it's now like a basic thing to say. I think it's amazing. You're in the trust region. <laughs> like I, I went to a baseball game last night and we were talking about this movie and my my friend was like, do you think it was a dream at the end? Like movies like that that are just like leave you wondering. Yeah, they just leave you wondering. It's just so well done, and and yeah, he's not the reason this movie works, but he he makes it work. That's mm-hmm. for sure. Mm-hmm. Yep, it's a great ensemble cast in this one for sure. There are a lot a lot of great pieces and parts to this. One of his few movies here in this time period that didn't really hit was Jay Edgar. Played Jay Edgar Hoover. Yeah. <sighs> This movie sucks. I think the makeup is awful when they turn him into an old guy. Yeah, and and the the story going back and forth. Sure, I don't like the time use in this film. Jagger Hoover obviously is was the founder of the FBI and like has a you know a lot of urban legends about him being like a closet sexual and a cross dresser and never like it's never been like verified because he was an FBI director so like nobody wants to mm-hmm. dive into that. So the storyline sucks. The acting is not the best. And yeah, this is Clint Eastwood and. To think Clint Eastwood and DiCaprio could make a bad movie is is pretty impossible. But somehow they made it. They made it happen. It's it's not good. It's not good. And now that Army Army Hammer's in it too, and that kind of yep, the cannibal of all cannibals adds a whole other cringe factor to it. Yeah, he plays his lover in this. So I mean, it's informative, it but is. and it's it's a fat like J. Edgar Hoover was a fascinating guy. He used to bug people, and he bugged. Mm-hmm. I was gonna say that's why his like urban legend lifestyle is so focused on is because of who he was publicly was so controversial Mm -hmm. and it's like wait is this is the guy who's doing all this shit like is this hypocritical or what's going on here yeah i agree i agree with you kyle the makeup like it's really hard to see him him and army hammer it's it's yeah play it's hard it was hard to see him play like a 70 year old it's like i just can't do it but another biopic another real life character that he played and another big time director speaking of other big-time directors. He teams up with Tarantino in 2012's Django Unchained, plays Calvin, got a Golden Globe nom, a, playing a notoriously racist character that he was apparently kind of worried about going all in on, and until they're like, fucking go all in, man. 
Like, that's what the character calls for. And by golly, does he do it? His scenes are pretty awesome. Case, this is the answer to the second part of your question for me. This is my favorite performance from Leo. I think he is unbelievable in this movie. Yeah, he is. It's a top three for me, too. But... Yeah, this is, this is two or three for me, I would say. He's so fucking hateable, yet has that southern charm, <laughs> yet Hat comes across like he's this dignified guy, but he's also a big fucking idiot. He does such a good job encompassing all of what you would expect to see out of such a hateable person. Mm-hmm. And that the scene where they're at the dinner table and you're the, you're just like waiting for him to expose Django as a, being a slave is like so. I mean, that's just um, that's top top notch acting because you are like on the edge of your seat just waiting for this guy to just absolutely explode. Mm-hmm. So well done. Reminds me of uh, another Tarantino movie with Christoph Waltz and Glorious Bastards picking apart Aldo yeah. in that group. Like same thing. You know he's gonna he's gonna uncover it at some point, just a matter of when. Yeah. Yep. Caprio's so good in this that rewatching it, I remembered how good everybody else was, but DiCaprio just stuck with me after I got done watching. When he takes the skull out and then smashes it, that was improvised and he actually cut his hand and was actually bleeding and went with it. And so him rubbing his blood on Kerry Washington's face is actually real. Oh, wow. And so those are real reactions. Yeah. Holy shit. And they kept it in there because, you know, he accidentally cut his hand. And so if you rewatch that scene, you could see him like look down and realize that I was like, oh, yeah, wow, that's really bleeding. And he just keeps going. That's another one I completely forgot. Kerry Washington's in that. <laughs> oh, yeah. The cast is amazing. It's amazing. And yet... DiCaprio and and Christoph Waltz, Samuel L. Jackson, and Jamie, I mean Jamie Foxx. Those three to me just they were on such a high level in that movie. You kind of forgot everybody else was in it until you rewatch. Mm-hmm. And the scenes that are cartoonish, I appreciate that they're cartoonish. Like yep. Tarantino, you know, like when it's like, hey, now we're gonna do like a spaghetti western. Yeah, spaghetti western, and he really does it, and I appreciate it. It's like, all right, this it's it, it is serious when it needs to be serious, and it's fun when it needs to be fun. Gives you a great uh, payoff at the end. Mm-hmm. Is the way it builds. Up. Do you think this or uh, Inglorious Bastards is better? Which one do you prefer? Glorious Bastards. I, th- I think most the majority of people would say Inglorious Bastards. I just know personally, I I actually like Django better. Okay. I also like Django better. Oh, I think I like Django better too. Oh, I'm on an island over here. All right, that's okay. Yeah, you are. I think Kyle's the the representation of the majority. I'm gonna send the bear to after you guys <laughs> after that. I would say I like the acting in Inglorious Bastards better, especially Christoph Waltz. He's like well, that. His character is one of my favorite. Ooh, that's a bingo. Yeah, he's, he's one of my favorite characters in any movie I've ever seen. But I just think Django is just you like the payoff in Django is better. I just I just like it. More. I don't know the payoff in Inglorious Bastards. It is pretty, but a room full of locked Nazis at all get shot and burned to death. I didn't want to say anything, but you got shit for taste. <laughs> I mean that's obvious, but it's got a platform to say my dumb thoughts. So here we are. It's obvious. Look at the company you keep. That's right. Well. You guys are my better halves, my better uh, quarters. Um, Great Gatsby plays Jay. Obviously, one of the most well-known and famous American novels of all time. Another fucking Boz movie that's just... Yep, another Baz Luhrmann movie. So much Baz, it's too much. I hate this movie. Mm, I don't hate it, but I appreciate Leo being self-aware enough to realize because this is so famous and no one's done it since Robert Redford... 
that he's almost setting himself up for failure by taking on the role because everybody has a different connection yeah. to th- this story. And I mean, this Baz Luhrmann at his finest with the extravagance, the colors, the the shots, the costumes. The most Baz you could. I mean, the the party scene is. I think my. I, it's the one scene in the movie that I like the most because that is where I think Baz's style plays the best, where it's just over the top opulence and lights, camera, action everywhere. But then, it, like when it continues into the dr- won an Oscar for that too. When it continues for the dramatic scenes, I'm like. Dude, I just need a, a second to breathe. Just like a second to breathe. Like they're in the car. Come on, old. Come on, old sport. Yeah, they're in, they're driving to the city, and it's just baz. And like, it's too much, man. The book is so good that like you can't. You know, it's one of those where it's like you just can't really can't really redo it. You know, or do it better than do do it better than the than the story that you that you think you know so well. So I also find Tobey Maguire to just be a terrible narrator and just the so. the pussy posse was at it again his boy yep. he and his boy toby here let's get to the one that i know you guys want to talk about and that's jordan belfort the wolf of wall street got a golden globe win bafta nom what a film what a picture yep this is my favorite performance Ooh, i mean the guy just zudes i walked out of that theater you know the movie's three hours long i felt like it was 30 minutes long that's how mm-hmm. that's how just commanding he is in this and obviously the movie you know Made made headlines for being so controversial and so um, over the top, but what you can't watch that movie and not remember just how just how great his performance was. Yeah. So think about it this way: like this movie's three hours long. It's not like Titanic where he's in like seventy five percent of the scenes. He's in every single scene. Yeah. Like he he is running <laughs> the show. Yeah. I'll take that back. The only scene he's not in is when that I can think of off the top of my head is when Jonah Hill and uh, yeah, they have and, that uh, John Bernthal g- get in the fight in like the shopping mall, which is like a yep. still. And I think that is, he just commands the screen so well in this movie. And yeah, this is my top performance for sure. Hey Rigby, I'm not leaving. <laughs> I'm not leaving. Think of all the memes that first it was like the meme of like him, like laughing on his bow. And then it's like the, him like, saying i'm not leaving or like the you know the the whole like scene where he's with mcconaughey in the beginning like all that stuff is just like yeah forever classic it's forever uh etched yeah. in our in our brains you know all these movies we just talked about the memes the django memes are crazy yeah. the great Gatsby, the toast yeah drink memes are all over the place and the wolf of wall street i mean just loaded up with the, that whole scene with him and kyle chandler that's my kyle favorite chandler. scene in the movie by far on the boat Yep. I think that's the best scene. When they're, when they're tiptoeing around each other, yeah. he's just like, get the fuck off my boat. Yeah, yeah. When he finally is like, wait, can you just say that one more time? <laughs> and he's like, are you, are you trying to bribe? For a second there, I thought you were trying to bribe, bribe a federal official. <laughs> <laughs> federal, yeah. Kyle, Kyle Chandler's awesome in this. Yeah. Uh-huh. And he calls him a little man, and that that's where the laugh yeah. scene comes from. He goes, I'm a little man. He fucking bursts out laughing in his face. I think that scene's the funniest one. Uh, not the funniest. I think that scene's my favorite acting one because it starts off intense and then it's his douchebaggery comes through like tenfold. The insecurity and douchebaggery and cockiness where he's throwing lobsters at the guy and yeah. throwing the $100 bills and shit. And the funny part is before that scene, he's with his lawyer, Bo Deedle, eating dinner and he's like, you can't fucking call this guy. Like, don't call him. He's an FBI agent. And then he's like, all right, I won't call him. And the next scene, he's like inviting him on his boat. Yeah. It's like, you idiot. It's pure ego driven. He's like, what if I just like talk to this dude and tell him to like 
drop it. Like, you think it'll work? He's like, don't fucking do that. All he had to do was sell the company. Yeah. He's like, if you could, if you could tap his phone, could you do that for me? (laughs) He said that he never does drugs and that he had to, he had to hire somebody, an expert to teach him how to like portray this, you know, this person on uh, heavily medicated, we'll say. And him and Jonah Hill had some YouTube video about a guy being drunk. And that's, that's what they imitated when they were doing that. But, I don't know. Yeah, I love that scene when he comes back and they're both just high off their ass. That's so funny. (laughs) Coming off Wolf of Wall Street, another Marty picture. So I think we're three deep at this point. Uh, He becomes the UN messenger of peace in 2014. So he's taken his stardom and given all of his uh, philanthropic and uh, producing work. Uh, He's being recognized by one of the biggest bodies internationally. Just remarkable. He made headlines with his man bun. Right. <laughs> Very exciting. Is coming from the guy that's bald. There you go. Strictly jealousy right there. That's all it is. Envy. You can only dream of that. Great. You can only dream of that. So 2015 comes. It's been years where he's been robbed of Oscars over and over and over again. And he plays Hugh in The Revenant, uh, a role that got him not just an Oscar win, but he swept the season with Oscar, BAFTA, Golden Globe, SAG, and Critics' Choice wins for best act holy hell given he was sweeping it all until the oscars it was pretty much a it was a done deal but at the same time they're like he's been snubbed so many times like who knows what will happen yeah isn't there only been a few actors that have swept the awards most recent one was probably lord dern for a marriage story yeah i think brad pitt did too yeah yeah both of them are locks that same year. locks it's so beautifully shot and um there's a lot of people that don't like this movie surprisingly i'm not one of them i i really like too. it it's a good movie I think the way that it's shot is what makes it so great. I think the story itself is yeah. not that deep. I think the performances are very good, but I think the way that it's shot is like, mm-hmm. you feel like you're there with them. Like, you're in the story. Inaritu, the director, he had just won for Birdman mm-hmm. the year before. Yes, he had. Yeah. And he actually won Best Director for The Revenant. So he, when he won Best Director, a lot of people thought The Revenant would win Best Picture. But do you guys know what won instead? Awesome movie, Spotlight. <laughs> Spotlight's great. Big fan. Spotlight's fantastic. Big fan. Love that movie. But I was very happy to see Leo win. This wasn't his best performance, but it was sure memorable. But I don't buy the bullshit that people like, he just grunted through it. It's not real. Like, no, no, you, no. You don't understand how, how much physical, yeah. emotional acting goes into that role. Like, shut the fuck up. As we'll learn, the guy didn't do a fucking movie for four years after <laughs> this damn thing. Like, really? He got his ass kicked. Like, he put himself through. Yeah, I mean, the next movie he did was Once Upon a Time mm-hmm. in Hollywood. Yep. Like, Definitely did a victory lap after he won, but like, yeah, the guy put himself through the pain of this role, and and he and Tom Hardy and everybody else in it. I mean, it was a tough ass thing to do, so he definitely earned it. Granted, he produced like fifteen projects in those four years, but he just didn't. He got nominated in '94, and this is what are we looking at there? Twenty-one years later. Twenty-one years later, and he finally wins after multiple nominations. And when he gets up there to give his speech. It is like the most humble speech you could possibly have where he thanks everyone under the sun. And then when it comes to talk about something that isn't thanking other people, he spends the entirety of the time talking about climate change. And it's like you're expecting a guy who's this world famous person, super successful in their field, dates only the hottest models on earth to have like some form of ego. And he's like, oh, cool. I got two minutes. This is what I really care about. And I, I wanted to dunk on him because a lot of times people use that opportunity to have those conversations. And you're like, uh, all right, like 
you're doing the talk, the talk, but not walk the walk, but he'd been walking that walk for also those 20 years. Oh. He's like, Oh, I finally won. Well, now you guys have to fucking listen to what I have to say. <laughs> I'm here, bitches. I waited a long time. Yeah. <laughs> on the box office front on this movie, you guys, there's an example of life imitating art. Nobody could knock off star Wars as the number one movie until this movie. And coincidentally, it also came the same weekend as winter storm Jonas shut down the East coast. All the people brave the <laughs> cold and the fucking blizzard to sit through cold and a blizzard and watch this movie. Just to feel like they're actually still outside. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So Rigby talked about it four years until his next movie, which was Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, returns back with Tarantino, plays Rick Dalton on a role that got him Oscar, Golden Globe, BAFTA, Sagnam for Best Actor. Kind of a redemption arc of a story. I, I started rewatching it yesterday. I didn't get a chance to, to finish it, but I really like his character in this movie, and I think it's some of his best acting, especially in the trailer when he's shitting on himself, and then that that scene with the little girl on set. Really, really phenomenal. Yeah, I love the scene when he's in his trailer. Oh, it's great. Fucking <laughs> when you're watching it, when he starts into it, you you think it's comedy. And then all of a sudden, you're like, this dude's having a fucking meltdown. We talked about his comedic chops, and I think he's hilarious in this movie. Both he and Brad Pitt. Um, in different ways, they're funny. You guys know my thoughts on this. I love it. Yep. I love the style. I love the decor. Storyline is awesome. And just the sort of... You know, fairy tale ending is is just epic. Huge fan of this movie. Can't say enough good things about it. And it's really funny how the two of them don't look anything alike until they're on the same set. And they just have the right makeup or the right mm -hmm. like half wig on. And all of a sudden you're like, yeah, he could be his stunt double. Mm -hmm. Yep. Except Brad Pitt's probably like a foot taller than Leo, but that's OK. <laughs> Maybe not. There's a Baz Luhrmann connection in this movie. A lot of people don't realize. Which is? Austin Butler. Oh, yeah. He plays Tex. Plays Tex, yep. Oh, that's right. Most recently played Elvis. Elvis Presley. There's an Andy McDowell connection in this movie as well. Whoa. Yep. Margaret Qualley. Yeah. Daughter. Oh, and I didn't even realize Sidney Sweeney plays one of the other girls in that little rat pack, too. Sidney Sweeney, Lena Dunham. Yep. Yeah, there's a... I didn't realize it. Dakota Fanning. She plays uh, Squeaky. Yeah. I appreciated the twist ending. I didn't see it coming. And... Uh, I like that he kind of like did the like you, what you mentioned, Rigby, like the fairy tale rewriting of Sharon Tate's of the story. Manson story. Yeah, yeah. The title's called Once Upon a Time, so you you yeah for you know you should expect that you should ex after after the movie you're like that's why he called it that. There you go. Yeah, <laughs> and not to be forgotten because we love talking about memes. The memes where you're pointing at the fucking TV is everywhere. People use it all the time. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Huge pop culture relevance. Also, the holy shit one. Yep. <laughs> and the one where he's crying in his chair after he had that incredible scene with the little girl. Like, that one gets used quite a bit, too. Still got it, Rick. <laughs> <laughs> Last role. Don't look up. Dr. Mindy alongside Tyler Perry. Almost forgot Tyler Perry was in this. The one good role. And he got Golden Globe and BAFTA noms. Uh, hey, settle down. He's great in Gone Girl. Relax over there. Oh, he is good in Gone Girl. Yeah, I, mean, I thought he was hysterical. Yeah. In this. I've never seen this. I think Leo's good in this movie, too. I think he does a good job. It's uh, it's just a way too real. And the, the, the yeah. seems to be like the, the major criticism. Leo kind of plays off like a celebrity Dr. Fauci vibes. And he does it very well. Yep. Where it's like, you could tell he's like he's serious about what he's saying. But then he starts like really enjoying the fame. And uh, 
my favorite scene of his is when he sleeps with Kate Blanchett and they're, she's like, Oh, I've actually slept with two former presidents. And she's like listing off like how awesome her life is. And then he's like, Oh, and he just starts talking about like how he's really into star Wars and how he met Mark Hamill once. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's like, Oh, all right. It surprises me that he would do a Netflix movie with how big of a movie star he is. Well, it's... But then I realized he's never done anything with Adam McKay. Yeah. So this may just have been his opportunity to work with McKay. Well, and you got to remember, it's it's got a very particular slant as a film. It aligns with his political ambit. It's 100% political. Who produced it? Can they pay me my fee? And does it align with what I believe in personally? But like Tom Cruise hasn't done a Netflix movie yet. You know what I mean? Like what? for as big of a movie star, like pure movie star as DiCaprio is. Yeah. It is a little surprising to me that he would do a Netflix movie. I think Tom considers himself the savior of cinema. So that's. Yeah, don't talk about the Messiah like that. I was about to say, I don't want Scientologists coming and get angry at Cruz, use your witchcraft on me. <laughs> hey, I don't give a shit. We called out the Pope last episode. Leonardo DiCaprio is a bigger movie star than Tom Cruise. I'm sorry. No one's touched us. I agree. You know what? That's probably a, a decent debate to have because they're so different in styles. I agree 100% with that, Craig. My definition of a movie star is filled by Leo DiCaprio. It's not filled by Tom Cruise. I don't know, man. It's apples and oranges to me. Like the biggest pure movie star in my life has been Jack Nicholson. Um, To me, DiCaprio has filled that spot and has carried that type of movie star on. I can see that. Tom Hanks. Well, that's all the acting. So we made, we basically mentioned every movie he's ever done. Yeah, because they're all good, man. They all rock. <laughs> the only one I didn't have in the show notes was Body of Lies, and Craig talked about it. So, boom, we nailed it. Yeah. Producing side, I want to talk about this a little bit. Go into Body of Lies real fast. Really fast. Sure. Not a very good movie. <laughs> that <was> so awful. <laughs> Him and Russell Crowe should have been so good, and it wasn't very good. It felt like a bad version of Spy Game. Huh. There you go. We don't want that. So producing, 51 producing credits. This is not all of them, but these are some of the ones that I highlighted because they have either unbelievable scores or are just well-known. Um, but he narrates and produces The 11th Hour in 07, Orphan in 2009, which has had like a return recently. A horror movie? I don't know if it was a sequel. Yeah, he, he produced Orphan. But I don't think he's involved with the new one. But Orphan's really good. I had to take a break from DiCaprio movies today, and so I watched Orphan. Yeah. Super good movie. Nice. And in fact, it's ironic because his production company has actually produced five horror movies, and he's only acted in one outside of that. Which is cool. Oh, I had no idea. Orphan, the first, or, I know there's a couple, or maybe the second one coming out. The first one's good. Orphan's good. Mm-hmm. Really good. He narrates... The Hubble documentary in 2010 and produced that. Red Riding Hood with Amanda Seyfried in 2011, which is completely random as I look at this list. The Ides of March. Is that mm-hmm. Ryan Gosling and George Clooney? Yep. Good movie. Runner Runner with our boy Anthony Mackie. Yep. In 2013. Out of the Furnace, 2013. That's Christian Bale, right? I heard I heard mm-hmm. Rigby's genuine disgust. For Runner Runner. Like, yep. Terrible. Was puked on the mic. Terrible. <laughs> then... Starting in like 2014, you get into all, a lot of the like environmental stuff. So you got Cowspiracy, the sustainability secret, Catching the Sun in 2015, Virunga, which may be the best documentary I've ever seen in my life. It is incredible. Really? It's about endangered apes in Africa, and it's so fucking good. I forget what the meta score is on the thing. It's damn, it might be 100. It's top two, top three documentaries I've ever seen. That's incredible. Check it out if you get a chance. I think it's on Netflix. I think you can watch it there. He got a primetime Emmy nom for that comes along with that before the flood the ivory game the life and lost art of says Sikorsky 
I looked into it at one point who this guy was. He's a Polish sculptor. Interesting. Ice on Fire, Richard Jewell, came out in 2019. The Loneliest Whale, The Search for 52, which was a documentary that came out last year. I saw in theaters. I really liked it. It was this like documentary about this whale that they've been tracking for decades that made a, a different noise than any other like humpback whale and had been tracking it across the world. It's a super fascinating documentary. He produced that. Dang. Um, six TV shows. He's taken all these passion projects he really cares about and really invested his, his money behind it, which I think is pretty cool. And a, a couple pop culture references I note when I think about Leo. Number one is, it's weird when I say this, I'm a Lil Dicky fan. He's got a song called Earth. I don't know if you guys have heard it and seen the, yeah. the video. At the end of the video, he's like going into his like epilogue talking about things. He's like, He's talking about aliens and shit, and he's like, we just figure out whatever Leo DiCaprio's doing, because I feel like that guy knows more about, like, how we're fucking up the planet than anyone else. He's like, in fact, the aliens came down, and we had to send somebody. I think we send Leo as our guy. He's like, hey, man, thanks. I disagree with him. Yeah, because he, like, plays tennis with Leo and shit like that. And then the other one is Ricky Gervais from the his last Golden Globes, where he's shitting on everybody in Hollywood, and he goes up to Leo. And he makes a joke about how long uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is so old that by the end of the premiere, Leo's date was actually too old for him. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah that's pretty- He's like, come on, mate. You're, you're pushing nearly 50, son. <laughs> so I always thought that was pretty good. We're at the, uh, the pinnacle. It's been a long episode, but a good one. Ooh. And uh, Rigby, this might be the toughest top performances we've ever done. So this one, obviously, there's... Dozens of lists out there. Um, I found one from Entertainment Weekly that actually ranks all of his performances numerically. We're not going to do them all, so I think we should stick to our top 10. But this is from August 2022, so it's up to date, and it's from a very reliable source. I like Entertainment Weekly a lot. It's a month old. Can't, can't ask for better than that. Yep. A wide Django. Django Unchained. So Django is number three, Kyle. Number three. There we yeah. go. Okay. Okay. Departed. Departed is... Ace, it's the Departed. Departed is number nine, Craig. Okay. Okay. Inception. Inception, number 15. Whoa. I mean, I get it. I understand. Entertainment Weekly. I'm, I'm literally like, I'm literally like on 25% zoom out cause to like see this whole list. It's like that. <laughs> give, me, give me Jordan Belfort, Wolf of Wall Street. That's a top fiver. Uh, number number okay. one. Yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. Number one. Titanic. Titanic. Six. Number seven. Oh, see, there we go. Okay. Once upon a time in Hollywood. Number two. There you go. Oh. Okay. So we got one, two, three. Give me the Aviator. Number five. Yep. Felt good about that. Wild card. Blood Diamond. Uh, Blood Diamond is number twelve. So you're close. Right on the outskirts of ten. Oh, shit. So we need ten, eight, six, and four. Revolutionary Road. The Revenant. So I heard the Revenant first. That's number six. Okay. Okay. The Revolutionary Road is probably in the top ten too. Eh? Revolutionary Road is number 11, so right, right on, on the, the edge. Side. Living on the edge. Not the beach. What's eating <laughs> What's eating Gilbert? Yeah, Ray? that's got to be in there. Number 10. Yep. There you go. So we're missing number 8? Eight? 8 and, and 4. Eight and four. This Boy's Life? Nope. Critters 3. <laughs> Critters 3 didn't make it on here, sorry. I was waiting to see when that would come up. Critters 3 was 3. Did Great Gatsby make it? <laughs> no, no Gatsby and no Critters 3. Huh. Shit, this list or, sucks. Shutter Island. Any... Probably Shutter Island. Oh, okay. Shutter Island is number eight. Okay. I mean, what have we missing? Jay Edgar, Don't Look Up. Gangs of New York. 
Nope. You're going to hate me when I tell you what four is. Catch me if you can. Catch me if you can. There you go. No, that's good. There I like go. that. I don't know why I didn't say that. That was stupid. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say you're going to hate me because you. That oh, yeah. Was a movie. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to about it. Critters, Critters 3 is second to last and Total Eclipse is third. Okay. Well, that aligns quite nicely with what we talked about. So It does. Yeah. Yeah. So we're the top three again? Wall Street, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and Django. I mean, his movies are so good. I feel like you could interchange that top 10 and everyone would be like, oh, I could see that. You know, yeah, like, I mean, the, and the crazy part is like 95% of the actors that we cover on this, like the aviator, he's amazing in the aviator. Yeah. That would be like number one. Yes. Yeah. For I, I agree. So Case, you asked, for our top movie and our top performance, I'm the only one who hasn't kind of alluded to one of them. Yep. For best movie for me, I think it's a toss-up between The Departed and Titanic. You gotta pick one. You do? It's the rule? I'm gonna go Titanic, probably. Titanic's favorite movie? I love Titanic, man. It's so rewatchable, bro. And best performance? This is so difficult. Probably... Ah! Critters 3! I love it. Bullshit cop-out. <laughs> yeah. It's between... It's between three. I can't pick. I can't pick. You got to pick one. You got to pick one. What are the three? Django, Wolf of Wall Street, and... Sounds like it's between two. You got to pick one. I'm probably going Wolf of Wall Street. It's probably my favorite. Okay. There you go. Rigby, what is, what's your favorite, favorite film, favorite role? Favorite movie is Departed. Favorite uh, role is Wall Street. James? Favorite movie is Inception. Uh, close is departed, but Inception gets the the edge there. And favorite performance is Django. That all we have all four have different answers. Mine's Inception for movie and yeah. Once Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I, I'll I'll throw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is a close second for me for favorite movie. Okay. And, uh, you guys, I haven't talked to anybody that's got the same answers. About I'm talking yeah. about forty different people. That's good. That's good. Well, that's a yeah. That's a great transition to us talking about Munson Meter because we're going to try to rate this man, and uh, it's going to be very interesting to see how this goes. What we do, we rate every actor on a scale of zero to one hundred based on a variety of factors. It could include longevity, project choice, their pop culture impact, acting range, awards footprint, other talents, personal life, comedic chops, box office success or lack thereof, and anything else that matters to us as Munson's. Rigby gets the honor of going first. Obviously, you know, this episode is one that I've looked forward to for a long time. There's two actors that I can think of that, Kyle, when you mentioned wanting to do a podcast about, about movie stars and their careers, two came to mind for being, like, really the perfect, the perfect example of why this show would be fun. One was Jack Nicholson, and the other would be uh, DiCaprio. Their trajectory is very similar. I mean, they're, you, there's a reason that people are in these movies, you know, every five years because they're, they are the most sought after person um, in Hollywood. And DiCaprio is that for me. And like I said, he's got the, the personal life that's awesome, obviously crushes it in every single role, household name, household face, got it all going for him. Very big into politics and, and activism, which I appreciate. And, and he's in it for the right reasons. So yeah, he's going to get, not a perfect score, very close, but he's going to get a 98 from me. Love it. Love, love, love it. James? When, when I was trying to come up with my score, it got to the point where I was like, I'm better off working from the top down instead of building him up to a score. I was like, what, what am I taking away from here? It's, exactly. It's like, yeah, he hasn't done comedies, really. He's funny in roles, but they're not comedies, I guess. Uh, he hasn't done a, 
uh, horror movies, but he's produced some good ones. These are the critiques I have. The other ones are longevity because he's young, but he's been doing it for a long time. So like, it's not, there's really not a lot. He's a successful child actor. He's, he's done the work. Yeah, right. Exactly. It's like, yeah, he's almost 50 and he's been uh, really good at acting for like 40 years. It's so it's, he's been around for a while. I guess I would dock a point because, you know, at a certain point dating really young women becomes kind of awkward, but like I get creepy. Yeah, like I get it. But like of the ways to do it the right way, that's the right way to do it. It's not like it's 18 year olds, you know, it's like, oh yeah, they're 25, I guess. Like, I don't know. It's a little weird. And so I would take I'd take points away for that, but like still not a lot. Uh, I think he's going to end up being the greatest actor of uh, our generation. I, I think Jack Nicholson is a apt comparison. I, I see very I see a lot of similarities between the two and I've loved almost every movie he's ever done. So only taking away a few points here, I'm gonna end up giving him a ninety-three. Hey. First of all, James, I feel like you were taking a shot at me for uh people that date younger women. It was inappropriate <laughs> to bring my personal life into this. <laughs> Uh, I happen to give him months and points for that. I think it's a very admirable <laughs> that he's a mentor and an elder statesman with these young models. It's all legal. It's just creepy. It is legal. Yeah, it's just odd, man. And I'm trying to figure out how Rigby's look, been looking forward to this episode for so long when the wheel decides. <laughs> it seems odd to me. I think him and Kyle are in cahoots deciding who we're covering every week. <laughs> Anyways, getting back to uh, the man of the hour. For the first time, we have somebody that has, not only do they have massive name recognition, they have massive role recognition. I love his uh, philanthropy and, and his uh, social justice causes, and, and I love how it's very organic. Uh, he doesn't respond to things as a social activist. He's, he's bringing issues to the forefront before most people know about him. Terrific range, you know, dramatic action, psychological and I, I would argue comedic. I agree with Rigby. I, I think I think he's a very funny actor in, in a lot of his roles. Uh, the only thing he hasn't had a great amount of exposure in his horror yet. I, uh, and Rigby said that he thinks we may have something coming soon. I really hope that's the case because I think he would be terrific in a, in a re really well-crafted psychological thriller or horror movie. He stays out of the negative news, which is hard to do. Another thing that's hard to do in the social media era is like we talked about, he's a pure movie star. And while everybody else is out getting exposure and name, like getting their name out and just throwing their name in front of everybody through constantly tweeting and TikToking and whatever people are, whatever the social media platform is today, you know, we don't ever hear about him. That's the throwback. Like we're talking with Jack Nicholson. The only time you ever saw Jack Nicholson outside of a movie or a Lakers game was on a rare appearance on the Johnny Carson show. And other than that, you never heard about him. And, and I think that's really the sign of a true movie star. And I think DiCaprio is that. Yeah, I'm going to come in a little bit lower than Rigby, and I'm going to give him a 97. <laughs> a little bit lower, right? Just one, one point lower? A little bit. It is lower. <laughs> he's looking at the score right it's now. Totally he's got an average of 96. For me to not have him in first, I'd have to tank him with like an 80. And I'm not going to do that. So Get him, Chip. Uh, Get him, Chip. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I'm like James. I, I kind of ticky tacky with some of my stuff, but you kind of have to when you're talking about stuff like Leo. So I condense down my major points to these pop culture staple for good or for bad. He's been getting roasted on online for the last month because of his dating world. So I don't think he's completely avoided everything, but yeah, that's 
ticky tack again things that but when you look at memes gifs from his roles and career i mean all over the place it's hard to pick five to ten best movies i mean that goes to show especially on only 46 credits most actors we cover yeah. 75 100 125 and you can easily pick a top five it's like yeah there's only like seven to pick from this guy's got half third of them and twice three times as many bangers of, of roles and so that's really awesome it's also the biggest producer we've ever covered we've covered producers but no one on this level where he has more producing credits and acting credit that's wild to me yeah. as i like look to take points away I don't think he's funny, funny. He has some roles that have some comedic angles, but he's not a j- guy that's going to lay a joke on you. At least hasn't shown it in his personal life or on screen. I don't really see that. Longevity, just a tick away because he's not at the level of Nicholson and these other folks that are acting into their 60s, 70s, Maggie Smith and their 80s. So I always have to kind of respect that from a comparison standpoint. But when I compare him to like Emma Thompson as my highest score, and when I compare him to Emma Thompson, I think he exceeds her in some areas but she exceeds him in terms of overall range her talents off screen writing he produces and dumps a bunch of money into stuff he really cares about but i think she's more talented has more talents to bring to the table than what leo can do with writing and those types of things but this there's not much i'm taking away from him so i'm gonna give him a 92 nice which brings leo to a solid 95 which not shockingly puts him in first place among the 72 actors we've covered. Yeah, I mean, well-deserved, and by a lot. <laughs> yeah, he's, by he's almost five points over PSH. That is setting the pace fairly fairly high. Yeah, here we are. Yeah. I love it, though. I love it. That's What's, what's our order? Five? Yeah. Leo, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Jamie Lee Curtis, Maggie Smith, and Emma Thompson. Okay. Good list. And good list. good list. Fair scores. Fair all around. All right, James. What does he have coming? I mean, what doesn't he at this that point? Is, uh, holy shit, this list is crazy. He's got 44 projects in development. He's producing and starring in a movie about Jim Jones, where he is Jim Jones. He's producing and starring in a movie about Teddy Roosevelt, where he is Teddy Roosevelt. He's in Marty's movie. next picture, Killers of the Flower Moon, which comes out early 2023. And then what is this? The the Wager, A Tale of Shipwreck, Mutiny, and Murder? Murder. Murder? <laughs> it's another Scorsese movie. This looks like this is going to be a good couple years for him. So obviously, like you know, the the range that I've left, where <laughs> there's seven more points left on the scale, he might be able to knock it out in the next year or two. He's producing the Captain Planet movie, which is not shocking in the slightest bit <laughs> <laughs> at all. He's slated to produce the Island of Doctor Moreau remake, mm-hmm. as well as uh, Akira, which is that going to be live action? Maybe it's a Taika directed project. So probably, I don't know. What's what's wild is the four guaranteed ones he has. He has two Marty Scorsese movies and two biopics where he's playing Teddy Roosevelt and Jim Jones. Yeah, two famously ego-driven men, right? which is going to be wild to see. Which he has played yeah. plenty in his career. Ego-driven, broken men. Broken men. Yeah, and he's nailed it. You know, he also produced the Jim Jones documentary that was on I think maybe AMC. Oh, shit. This is going to be a hell of a project. That may be another award, guys. That could be a horror movie. Now that I think of it, that could be the one. Yeah. Depends how you want to write it. Yeah. Yep. Depends how the story's written. Yeah, exactly. Did you talk about The Devil in the White City? Oh, another Scorsese? The Devil in the White City is about this uh, this serial killer who like... Oh, H.H. Uh, Holmes. Yeah. Yeah. In the Chicago World's Fair. It's, supposed to, it's like a really fascinating story. Yeah. Keanu Reeves is the only star attached. Mm. We're getting a little Keanu Leo crossover. Okay. That has not happened. He would have got two extra points from me. 
Our next episode is our annual Halloween special. Holy shit, already? Yeah, we got Stephanie Malone from Fear and Loathing Podcast. She's great. Who's joining us once again. She was here for Jamie Lee Curtis last year. Already reached out to her and told her, sent her the stuff. She's pumped. She's excited. Rocking and rolling. Nice. Yeah, she's really good. She's like the Leonardo DiCaprio of podcasts. She doesn't do every podcast. She picks her projects well (laughs) and spaces them out. Yeah, she does. (laughs) She's great. We we were excited to have her back. um, And... For sure. She wheel chose from this group, and she decided to come hang out with us for one of these five. And four of them were recycled from the year before, and we just added a new one. So we still have Tony Todd, still have Nev Campbell, still have Bruce Campbell, still have Doug Jones, and we add, added Max von Sydow to the wheel. So what are our thoughts? What do we want to cover? I mean, Max von Sydow has been in some creepy-ass shit. Yes. He's got the horror moves, but he's also got... Three Days of the Condor, baby. Love that movie. Go through that list. You're going, like, famous series you know it's like everybody has one yeah and at least one i think either of the campbells would be my move my choice ever bruce i want to i want to do that von sido just because i want to have somebody watch this i was just gonna say that rigby i want someone to have to watch that that movie because i watched that man throw that's a messed up movie top 10 movie on imdb yeah it's top 10 movie if you can figure out what it's about I'm Bruce Campbell guy. I can't talk about the Evil Dead series, even the the TV show Ash versus Evil Dead. I can't talk about those enough. He'd be fun. He'd be a, yeah. he'd be a lot of fun movies to watch. Absolutely, he's a legend. And he's crazy enough, you guys. We could probably get him on the podcast with us. Bruce Campbell, probably. <laughs> that'd, yeah, that'd be awesome. <laughs> My brother-in-law would have a heart attack. He'd be so jealous. Ace would have a heart attack. Uh, maybe we'd be the bill of the ball. Yeah, you, yes, Bruce. Yes, Bruce. Yes, Bruce. <laughs> I mean, Tony Todd. We get to talk about Candyman. Yeah, that's all the other crazy shit he's done over the years, and then and The Rock. Nev. We get to talk about Scream and all of those movies, and that's obviously a lot of fun, along with like wild things and shit like that. I think she's underrated. I think she's a really good actress, and the last Scream, she was great. Yeah, I just don't think people respect Scream that much for some reason, and like, if you go back and watch it, it's great. Scream's incredible. It holds up. I still want Doug Jones, because Doug Jones is such a fascinating performer, and that he's always in a suit of some kind, right? He is, he's the fish guy, he's the the creature. I'd have no way to critique. I would rate him, I know. Yeah. (laughs) How do you rate this guy? Be like when he was speaking with his hands as eyeballs, uh, like he did a good job as that, I guess. Just keep in mind the way our Halloween list works, as long as we keep going with this thing, we're going to cover all of these people at some point, just a matter of when, right? So, yeah. But yeah, how do we rate Doug Jones? I don't fucking know. You're going to have to figure it out. What do we think Stephanie would would join us? Who did, I mean, she just loves Halloween. I think one of the Campbells. One of the Campbells? But based on looking at some of her. The thing she's written in her website for the last episode, she's very eclectic. I think she's going to do the, I think she's doing Max Vonsato. She doesn't decide. We don't decide. The wheel decides, and we'll see what happens. The wheel decides for spooky season. <laughs> right around this time, I always do that to my wife when I'm like suggesting movies. Like, we got to watch like horror movies because it's spooky season. <laughs> well, poor wife. We didn't have. Aubrey, again, couldn't make it, so we don't have a guest plug this time, so we'll see everybody on October 20th for the next episode. Thanks for listening. If you're here, this is definitely our longest episode ever. We're not even in post-editing yet, and I know it's going to be longer than two hours, but it's a damn good one when we cover somebody like Leo. So we appreciate you being here. Thanks for listening. 
As always, you can find us on Twitter, Munson's at Movies. You can Instagram us, Munson's at the Movies. You can email us, Munson's at the Movies at gmail.com. Any final thoughts from Leonardo Wilhelm DiCaprio? Is there something that you just want to go ahead and ask me? Because I'll give you the fucking answer, all right? I base most of what I do on the idea that you're pretty fucking good at what you do. I probably could be you. Yeah, I don't want to be you. Munson's out. All right, let's go. Thank you for the education, gentlemen. We've just received a PhD in stupidity. Doctor, shall we? You know what? I'm not leaving. I'm not leaving. I'm not fucking leaving! <laughs>